Hey guys, welcome to the Basking in the Bible podcast. This podcast is all about finding out what the Bible says about a plethora of different topics that are prevalent in today's world and letting the truth and hope of scripture fill your heart and mind in order to encourage you. Well, hello, hello. Welcome to this episode of the Basking in the Bible podcast. This is a little bit late for me normally um, because I was supposed to have one done on Monday of last week and then uh, I lost all of my footage in the or not footage but audio in the episode that I had created um, because of some type of glitch in the app and then on Saturday which was my next scheduled podcast day I was in Hampton, South Carolina with my dad's side of the family. So, um, but I'm back today. So I'm happy about that. And I'm happy that anybody that's listening to this and hears me talking is here, um, hopefully enjoying this episode. Obviously right now, probably not enjoying it too much because it's only been like a minute and a half, but Um, I do hope you guys enjoy this episode. Um, so yeah, anyway, we're going to be reading chapter five of, what are we going to, okay, we're going to be reading chapter five of Anxious for Nothing by Max Lucado. And luckily I didn't even record on Saturday because I knew I was going out of town. So that's good because I didn't want to lose the episode again and we avoided that so that's good all right so I'm just gonna jump right in this is what the beginning of chapter five of anxious for nothing by Max Lucado says and if you have the book just before I start if you have the book um I encourage you to open it and read with me but if you don't at least get your Bible, because if you have one, if you don't, that's okay, but get your Bible or your Bible app or whatever, and please read with me, because I think it would be very beneficial, um, of course, if you don't want to, you don't have to, but that is my strong suggestion, is that you do, because it's very helpful in you know, being able to reflect. So let's get started. This is what the beginning of chapter five of this book says. Disaster was as close as the press of a red button. Four Russian submarines patrolled the Florida coast. U.S. warships had dropped depth charges. The Russian captain was stressed, trigger happy, and ready to destroy a few American cities. Each sub was armed with a nuclear warhead. Each warhead had the potential to repeat a Hiroshima-level calamity. Had it not happened for the contagious calm of a clear-thinking officer, World War III might have begun in 1962. His name was Vasily Arkhipov, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, so just bear with me. Um, That's my best guess, though. He was the 36-year-old chief of staff for a clandestine fleet of Russian submarines. The crew members assumed they were being sent on a training mission off the Siberian coast. They came to learn that they had been commissioned to travel 5,000 miles to the southwest to set up a spearhead for a base near Havana, Cuba. 
The subs went south and so did their mission. In order to move quickly, the submarines traveled on the surface of the water where they ran head-on into Hurricane Daisy. The 50-foot waves left the men nauseated and the operating systems compromised. Then came the warm waters. Soviet subs were designed for the polar waters, not the tropical Atlantic. Temperatures inside the vessels exceeded 120 degrees Fahrenheit. The crew battled the heat and claustrophobia for much of the three-week journey. By the time... Hold on. The crew battled the heat and claustrophobia for much of the three-week journey. Okay, I'm just making sure I get that out correctly. By the time they were near the coast of Cuba, the men were exhausted, on edge, and anxious. The situation worsened when the subs received cryptic instructions from Moscow to turn northward northward and patrol the coastline of Florida soon after they... Yeah, coastline of Florida, period. Soon after they entered American waters, their radar picked up the signal of a dozen ships and aircraft. The Russians were being followed by the Americans. The U.S. ships set off depth charges. The Russians assumed they were under attack. The captain lost his cool. He summoned his staff to his command post and pounded the table with his fist. We're going to blast them now. We will die, but we will sink them all. We will not disgrace our navy. The world was teetering on the edge of war, but then Vasily Arkhipov asked for a moment with his captain. The two men stepped to the side. He urged his superior to reconsider. He suggested they talk to the Americans before reacting. The captain listened. His anger cooled. He gave the order for the vessels to surface. The Americans encircled the Russians and kept them under surveillance. What they intended to do is unclear, as in a couple of days, the Soviets dove, eluded the Americans, and made it back home safely. This incredible brush with death was kept secret for decades. Archipod deserved a medal, yet he lived the rest of his life with no recognition. It was not until 2002 that the public learned of the barely avoided catastrophe. As the director of the National Security Archive stated, the lesson from this event is that a guy named Vasily Arkhipov saved the world. Why does this story matter? You will not spend three weeks in a sweltering Russian sub, but you may spend a semester carrying a heavy class load, or you may fight the headwinds of a recession. You may spend night after night at the bedside of an afflicted child or aging parent. You may fight to keep a family together, a business afloat, a school from going under. You will be tempted to press the button and release not nuclear warheads, but angry outbursts, a rash of accusations, a fiery retaliation of hurtful words. Unchecked anxiety unleashes an anola gay of destruction. How many people have been wounded as a result of unbridled stress? And how many disasters have been averted because one person refused to buckle under the strain? It is this composure Paul is summoning in the first of a triad of proclamations. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious for anything. Philippians 4, 5-6 through 6. The Greek word translated here as gentleness describe, and I don't really know how to pronounce it, um, but it's spelled E-P-I-E-I-K-E-S. Um, if y'all wanna, if y'all wanna look that up, describes a temperament that is seasoned and mature. It envis- envisions an attitude that is fitting to the occasion, level-headed and tempered. The gentle reaction is one of steadiness, even-handedness, fairness. It looks humanely and reasonably at the facts of a case. Its opposite would be an overreaction or a sense of panic. This gentleness is evident to all. Family members take note. Your friends sense a difference. Co-workers benefit from it. Others may freak out or run out, but the gentle person is sober-minded and clear-thinking. Contagiously calm. The contagiously calm person is the one who reminds others God is in control. This is the executive who tells the company, let's all do our part. We'll be okay. This is the leader who sees the challenge, acknowledges it, and observes, these are tough times, but we'll get through them. Gentleness. Where do we query this gym? Or Corey. I don't know how to pronounce that. How can you and I 
keep our hands away from the trigger. How can we keep our heads when everyone else is losing theirs? We plumb the depths of the second phrase. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Philippians 4, 5 through 6. The Lord is near. You are not alone. You may feel alone. You may think you are alone. But there is never a moment in which you face life without help. God is near. God repeatedly pledges his proverbial presence to his people. To Abraham, God said, Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Genesis 15, 1. To Hagar, the angel announced, Do not be afraid. God is heard. Genesis 21, 17. When, I, when Isaac was expelled from his land by the Philistines and forced to move from place to place, God appeared to him and reminded him, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Genesis 26, 24. After Moses' death, God told Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Joshua 1, 9. God was with David in spite of his adultery, with Jacob in spite of his conniving, with Elijah in spite of his lack of faith. Then, in the ultimate declaration of communion, God called himself Emmanuel, which means God with us. He became flesh. He became sin. He defeated the grave. He is still with us in the form of his spirit. He comforts, teaches, and convicts. Do not assume God is watching from a distance. Avoid the quicksand that bears the marker, God has left you! Do not indulge this lie. If you do, your problem will be amplified by a sense of loneliness. It's one thing to face a challenge, but to face it all alone? Isolation creates a downward cycle of fret. Choose instead to be the person who clutches the presence of God with both hands. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Psalm 118, 6. Before we continue, I just wanted to say that when it was talking about how isolation is really bad for anxiety I can totally attest to that because I have struggled with depression and anxiety simultaneously and one of the I guess symptoms of my anxiety was or is me wanting to isolate and that's I always say that depression and anxiety are opposites depression is telling you or like telling your brain is telling you that um I'm too tired to get up and go out because it's too hard. Um, And also telling you that you need to go out because you're lonely being at home. But then your anxiety is telling you, don't go out. It could be dangerous. It could be really uncomfortable. Um, so there's no, there's no point in putting yourself in that situation. So I just wanted to say that because it's very important for your anxiety and your depression. If you, if any of you struggle with those things, that, that is so important to get out and be in community and be surrounded by people that support you, um, and to, face it. All right, let's continue. Because the Lord is near, we can be anxious for nothing. This is Paul's point. Remember, he was writing a letter. He did not use chapter and verse numbers. This system was created by scholars in the 13th and 16th centuries. The structure helps us, but can also hinder us. The apostle intended the words of verses 5 and 6 to be read in one fell swoop. The Lord is near, consequently, do not be anxious about anything. Early commentators saw this. John Chrysostom Chrysostom, I don't know, like to phrase the verse this way. The Lord is at hand, have no anxiety. Theodoret or Theodoret of Cyrus translated the words, the Lord is near, have no worries. 
We can calmly take our concerns to God because He is as near as our next breath. This was the reassuring lesson from the miracle of the bread and fish. In an event crafted to speak to the anxious heart, Jesus told His his disciples to do the impossible, feed 5,000 people. Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. John 5, sorry, John 6, 5 through 6. When John described this gathering as a great multitude, he was serious. There are 5,000 men plus women and children, Matthew 14, 21. Imagine a capacity crowd at a sports arena and you've got the picture. Jesus was willing to feed the entire crowd. The disciples, on the other hand, wanted to get rid of everyone. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Matthew 14, 15. I detect some anxiety in their words. I sense a tone of aggravation, maybe frustration. They don't call Jesus master. They don't come to him with a suggestion. They march as a group to Christ and tell him what to do. The disciples see a valley full of hungry people. Growling stomachs will soon become scowling faces, and the disciples may have a riot on their hands. They had every reason to feel unsettled. Then again, did they not have equal reason to feel at peace? By this point in their experience with Jesus, they had seen him heal leprosy, heal the centurion's servant without going to the servant's bedside, heal Peter's mother-in-law, calm a violent sea, heal a paralytic, heal a woman who had been sick for 12 years, raise a girl from the dead, drive out an evil spirit, heal a demon-possessed man in a cemetery, change water into wine, and heal a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. By the way, all of those things that I just read are in the Gospels. Most of them are in Matthew, but some of them are in Mark and some of them are in John as well. So um, in case you're studying in any of those books right now, be on the lookout for any of the things I just listed or reflect on any of the ones you've already studied that I listed. Did any of the disciples pause long enough to think, well, hmm, Jesus healed the sick people, raised the dead girl, and calmed the angry waves. I wonder, might he have a solution we have not seen? After all, he is standing right here. Let's ask him. Did it occur to anyone to ask Jesus for help? The stunning answer is no. They acted as if Jesus weren't even present. Rather than count on Christ, they had the audacity to tell the creator of the world that nothing could be done because there wasn't enough money. How did Jesus maintain his composure? How did he keep from looking at the disciples and saying, have you forgotten who I am? Finally, a boy offered his lunch basket to Andrew who tentatively mentioned the offer to Jesus. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down, about 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. John 6, 10 through 13. Not one coin was spent. They started the day with 200 coins. They ended the day with 200 coins. In addition, they filled 12 baskets with leftover food. A souvenir for each apostle, perhaps? Though people were fed, the bank account was untouched, and we have a lesson to learn. Anxiety is needless because Jesus is near. You aren't facing 5,000 hungry bellies, but you are facing a deadline in two days, a loved one in need of a cure, a child who is being bullied at school, a spouse intertwined in temptation. On one hand, you have a problem. On the other hand, on the other hand, you have a limited quantity of wisdom, energy, patience, or time. 
What you have is nowhere near what you need. You have a thimble full and you need bucket loads. Typically, you'd get anxious. You'd tell God to send the problem packing. <clears throat> Excuse me. You've given me too much to handle, Jesus. This time, instead of starting with what you have, start with Jesus. Start with his wealth, his resources, and his strength. Before you open the ledger, open your heart. Before you count coins or count heads, count the number of times Jesus has helped you face the impossible. Before you lash out in fear, look up in faith. Take a moment, turn to your father for help. In his fine book, The Dance of Hope, Bill Frey remembers the day he tried to pull a stump out of the Georgian dirt. He was 11 years old at the time. One of his chores was the gathering of firewood for the small stove and fireplace of the homestead. He would search the woods for stumps of pine trees that had been cut down and chop them into kindling. The best stumps were saturated with resin and therefore would burn more easily. One day I found a large stump, and this is, by the way, this is a quote from his book. One day I found a large stump in an open field near the house and tried to unearth it. I literally pushed and pulled and crowbarred for hours, but the root system was so deep and large I simply couldn't pull it out of the ground. I was still struggling when my father came home from his office, spotted me working, and came over to watch. I think I see your problem, he said. What's that? I asked. You're not using all your strength, he replied. I exploded and told him how hard I had worked and for how long. No, he said, you're not using all your strength. When I cooled down, I asked him what he meant, and he said, You haven't asked me to help you yet. This business of anxiety management is like pulling stumps out of the ground. Some of your worries have deep root systems. Extracting them is hard, hard work. In fact, it may be the toughest challenge of all, but you don't have to do it alone. Present the challenge to your father and ask for help. Will he solve the issue? Will he solve the issue? Yes, he will. Will he solve it immediately? Maybe, or maybe part of the test is an advanced course in patience. This much is sure, contagious calm will happen to the degree that we turn to him. Alright guys, I really enjoyed reading this episode with you guys, and I hope you guys enjoyed it and found it encouraging and found some little nuggets of, um, yeah, just little nuggets of encouragement, and I hope you guys will join me again for the next episode of the Basking in the Bible podcast. Don't forget, if you did enjoy this podcast and you have enjoyed my past episodes, um, please follow the podcast on Spotify. And um, if you have not listened to my other episodes, if this is the first episode that you're listening to, I will highly recommend that you... um, that you listen to the other episodes because I think you will find those encouraging as well. Most of the time, um, I try to make my episodes about at least 15 to 30 minutes long. Sometimes they're a lot shorter than that, and some of the episodes are just kind of little updates on how I'm doing, but um, I'm trying to post more consistently so that there's more content, so that there's more things that more people will enjoy. Anyway, guys, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. I hope you guys have a great day or night or whatever, um, time of day or, (laughs) uh, time it is where you are. And I will be back soon for the next episode of the Basking in the Bible podcast. But until then, Jesus loves you. And I do too. And yeah, bye guys.